Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jeff Broadwater, author of Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution. Jeff Broadwater, author of Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution. Of all the people involved in writing the Constitution, why did you pick these two? Well, <clears throat> I picked those, these two because, well, uh, historians and political scientists have often seen a, a tension between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I mean, the Declaration, for example, talks about all men being created equal. The Constitution has that infamous three-fifths clause that counts a slave as three-fifths of a free person. Um, and, of course, Jefferson was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. Masson's remembered as the father of the Constitution. And I thought it would, but they were the best of friends. And so I thought it would be interesting to sort of explore that tension. How did these two men who were close political allies produce a document that, uh, that uh, two documents that seemed in some ways in inconsistent? Uh, and probably none of the founders were probably more influential than Madison and Jefferson. So it was natural, I think, they seemed interesting anyway to me to look at the two up together. Now, for, for people who might not be entirely clear on it, can you talk about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the difference between them? Like, how many years apart were they? Well, the, de the Declaration of Independence is adopted in, in 1776. The Constitution is, is written in 1787, goes into effect 1789, so a little more than a decade between the two, two, doc two documents. Declaration of Independence declares independence from Great Britain. It's very much a, a revolutionary manifesto lays down a few basic principles. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed with certain inalienable rights, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Goes on with certain grievances against mainly King George and then, and then closes with his Declaration of Independence. Uh, the Constitution is much more prosaic. I mean, it, it, it basically sets up the structure of government that we live under now. And there are a few protections for civil liberties. There's a ban, for example, on ex post facto laws, laws that make something criminal after the events occurred. Uh, but it, 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 it's, it doesn't talk about really liberty or equality. So they're, they're two very different kinds of documents. Does the Declaration of Independence have any legal standing? That's a good question. That's, that's a good question. I, uh, uh, and I, I'm not sure I can give a, a good answer to that. I, I really would probably have to, if I was pushed, I'd probably have to say no, but it has enormous moral significance, I think, to, to, to Americans. Um, and it did, and one of the things I learned working on the book, it did have a certain uh, standing or importance under international law. And I learned some things about that term declaration working on the book. Uh, in, in the 18th century, a declaration could be one of three things. And the Declaration of Independence was a little bit of all three. Um, a declaration under English law could be a way to start a lawsuit, like a complaint or maybe an indictment in, in, in a criminal case. It could be a, a, a major policy statement by a legislative body. Or 
it could be an assertion of a, 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 a political society's rights under international law. Um, the, uh, the, toward the end of the, the Declaration, Jefferson talks about the colonies being free and independent states. And I didn't realize until I started research on that book, that phrase free and independent had significance under international law, that, that, that you had to be free and independent before you could claim the rights of a sovereign nation under national law. So as a matter of, of the law of nations, you could say the Declaration of Independence had some legal significance. So the Declaration of Independence was uh, signed in 1776 and the Constitution in 1789. Who ran the country in those 13 years? Well, well the, um, the, 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 the central government, the, the national government, was established by a document called the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation set up a Congress. There was no president, there was no chief executive, no federal court system, no Supreme Court. There was simply a one-house Congress, which didn't have a lot of power. It couldn't impose taxes. It could ask the states for money, but it couldn't impose taxes, couldn't regulate commerce or, or, or foreign trade. Uh, it wasn't very democratic. Uh, each state had one vote, regardless of population. Each state had one vote, and it was about impossible to amend. It took unanimous consent of all 13 states before it could be amended. So the, the Congress provided what national government we had, which wasn't very much. Uh, the real powers were in the state governments. Did people at the time, you, you used the phrase free and independent states, did, did people at the time consider it to be one country or 13 countries? Well, sort of. <laughs> uh, there were uh, uh, and, and I'll, I'll just speak to, 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 to Jefferson and Madison. Um, I think Jefferson considered the American people to be one people and to be one nation with a weak central government uh, and uh, with the states as independent with regard to their in, internal affairs. Uh, and uh, I think Madison probably shared that, that, that view, um, but uh, there were they had some contemporaries who would, would push back and say that uh, uh, no, the states are more or less uh, uh, completely uh, independent. So, uh, what was the problem with the Articles of Confederation that they felt like it had to be replaced? Uh, there were there were a number of problems um, because. Congress couldn't impose taxes. They struggled to pay their bills uh, because they couldn't regulate trade. They couldn't retaliate against countries, particularly Great Britain, that discriminated against American trade. Um, they couldn't enforce some of the commitments that the United States had made under the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Revolutionary War. Uh, specifically, um, the, the Treaty of Paris said that British uh, creditors or uh, 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 British creditors to whom Americans owed debts that were incurred before the revolution should be allowed to recover those debts in state court. And the state courts wouldn't, or the state governments wouldn't cooperate, um, which gave the British an excuse not to honor all their commitments under the Treaty of Paris. So the short answer is Congress couldn't enforce some of the foreign commitments that, that it made. Um, that was, I think, the principal 
problem. Could they, could they tax? No, what, they could borrow money, and they went deeply in debt, um, or they could ask the states for money, uh, and the states, uh, they could, what they used, the term they used was requisition. They could requisition funds from the states, uh, and the states rarely met the, the requisitions. Uh, they hoped that they could sell land in the West, uh, but the public land sales never seemed to produce as much revenue as, as, as Congress hoped they would or that they, they thought they needed. Um, another problem that was particularly a problem for Madison was the behavior of some of the states. I mean, the states were making it difficult for British creditors to collect lawful debts. Uh, they were printing paper money, which lost its value quickly and caused inflation. Uh, they were breaching contracts. They were doing lots of things. And, uh, and Madison hoped that a stronger federal government or national government could serve as this sort of check on these states. Um, and historians sort of debate what was the biggest issue for Madison. Uh, some would say, well, it was Congress's inability to do some of the things the central government needs to do. And others would say, no, it was some of the shenanigans that were going on at the state level. But they really related. And this was a this was sort of just a fundamental problem. The country suffered from an unfavorable balance of trade. We were buying manufactured goods from abroad. They were worth more than the crops that we were selling overseas. So you have this unfavorable balance of trade. It's draining hard currency, or specie as they would say, out of the country. That made it difficult for uh, people to pay bills, pay their bills. It made it difficult for states to collect taxes. States couldn't collect taxes. They couldn't meet the requ requisitions of Congress. So I don't see it as an either-or problem. You know, you know, there wasn't just, it wasn't just you know, Congress was weak or the states were irresponsible. You had a basic economic problem that, uh, that, uh, that um, caused problems at both levels of government. Whose idea was a constitutional convention? Uh, it was um, probably, well, there were a number of people that were talking about that. Uh, there had there, there, been a discussion of a constitutional convention going back probably to about the end of the American Revolution. I would say if I had to name names, I would say Alexander Hamilton and Madison and the handful of delegates who met in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, before the Constitutional Convention. Uh, this was about the mid-1780s. This would be about 1785, 1786. Uh, the, the states are becoming concerned about these commercial issues, the, this, the inability of Congress to, to regulate uh, trade, and even to prevent states from discriminating against one another. Some, some states would, would, would tax imports from a neighboring state at a higher rate than, say, they would tax imports from, from Britain. So there was the tension, uh, tension among the states. Uh, and the states were sufficiently concerned about that that um, they called a convention to meet in Annapolis, Maryland, and just talk about trade regulations. Well, what happened in Annapolis was only about half the states sent delegates, say it wasn't very good turnout. So there weren't enough folks there for the Annapolis Convention to do anything of substance um, other than recommend that Congress call the Constitutional Convention and the state support it. And uh, as I say, there were a number of people involved there and, and probably 
the best answer, you know, whose idea was the Constitutional Convention, was you know, just a list of the delegates that were there at Annapolis. But Hamilton and Madison were the key drivers, and it was actually Hamilton that wrote the address of the Annapolis Convention that proposed the Constitutional Convention. Well, just a little sidebar, what was Shays' Rebellion? Shays' Rebellion was uh, an uprising in western Massachusetts of farmers who, like a lot of people, were having trouble paying their debts and having trouble paying their, their taxes. And uh, there were some other rebellions like this early in American history, and typically the way they would go, there'd be peaceful protests and maybe there'd be attacks on courthouses because the courthouse was where you know, mortgages were foreclosed or where tax liens were enforced. Oh, so. attacks like A-T-T-A-C-S, not A-T-A-X. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, pardon, pardon the accent. Yeah, T-A-X-E-S. Uh, the, the courthouses became a sort of a symbol of, of, uh, of oppressive government, and so there were attacks on some courthouses in Massachusetts. Uh, the Massachusetts militia put it down, put the Shays' Rebellion down, but it really scared Madison uh, and a number of his contemporaries to death because the fear was, well, we dodged the bullet this time. We suppressed this rebellion. But these problems are occurring throughout the colonies, and maybe next time there'll be another rebellion and it'll get out of control. Now, this is one of the stories which really illustrates the difference between Madison and Jefferson. Uh, and of course, now Jefferson's in France. He's American minister to France when Shays' Rebellion occurs. But he's not, he's not disturbed about Shays' Rebellion at all. Scares Madison to death. But Jefferson, Jefferson actually thinks this is, this is probably a good sign that the, 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 the people uh, think they're being abused by the government. They're protesting. They're, they're breaking out of their apathy. And uh, so uh, uh, Jefferson just sort of uh, d d uh, dismisses this. Uh, he's much more tolerant a popular protest than Madison is. You write in here that Jefferson suggested that the Constitutional Convention had overreacted to Shays' Rebellion. Yes. He told Adams point blank, the Philadelphia delegates had gone too far. I think all the good of this new Constitution might have been couched in three or four new articles to be added to the good old venerable fabric of the Articles of Confederation, which should have been preserved even as a religious relic. So yes. he wasn't for a Constitutional Convention? He, uh, he was for amendments to, 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 to the Articles. Uh, almost everybody uh, agreed, uh, well, I say almost everybody, most people agreed that Congress should be able to regulate trade. Um, a lot of people thought Congress should be able to impose taxes. Uh, I think Jefferson thought we probably need an executive branch of, of some kind. Um, but he didn't see the need for wholesale constitutional reform that Madison saw. And I think there were a couple reasons for that. Uh, and we just sort of touched on one. Jefferson was just, just more of an optimist. He just, he just didn't worry about things as much as Madison did. And I think the other thing, and I try to make a point of this, that Jefferson had a different perspective because he'd spent most of the 1780s, or at least the last part of the 1780s, in France. And he could see that the average white American was much better off than the average European. So whatever problems the United States was having were, were trivial compared to what he saw in France and other, other parts of Europe. Uh, Madison, on the other hand, is, is going back and forth between Congress, which doesn't have the power to do much, and, uh, and the Virginia 
state legislature, which is doing a lot of things he doesn't think they should be doing. And so to him, the need for constitutional reform is it's, it's, it's more immediate, it's more pressing. Were Jefferson and Madison friends? Yes, they were, they were very close friends. Did they know each other from their yeah, Virginia yeah, days? Yes, the, uh, and the relationship developed a little slowly. As best I can tell, they met in the fall of 1776 when they were both members of the Virginia House of Delegates. Now, Madison was a freshman at that point, and uh, uh, Jefferson had been in the assembly for, for several years. So he was, he was, much, he was Madison's senior. So they really weren't that close. They, they knew each other. They, they realized they shared similar positions on the separation of church and state. They both supported freedom of religion, but they weren't close. They really become close uh, about 1779-1780 when Jefferson's governor of Virginia and Madison is serving on the governor's council, which was a kind of an advisory board that worked with the governor. And there were several months there where Madison and Jefferson met just about every day. Uh, and then uh, uh, Madison's elected to Congress, and so he goes, he, he goes to, to Philadelphia. But they really started to become close then, uh, and then the, the relationship just grows after that, and they become very close friends um, and, and, and the closest of political allies. Uh, and, and Madison says... Um, um, after Jefferson dies, Jefferson dies in 1826, Madison dies in 1836. Then Madison says after Jefferson dies that they became friends in about that 1779-1780 period and nothing ever disrupted that friendship, even though they had some real differences over the Constitution. Now, at the time, uh, Jefferson was governor of Virginia and mm -hmm. uh, the Articles of Confederation going on in Washington. What type of government did uh, Virginia have? Um, Virginia was governed under a constitution that had been adopted in 1776. This was in the summer of 1776. Um, they adopted a new state constitution. And what had happened was that um, when the Continental Congress saw independence on the horizon, they hadn't declared independence yet, but I think there was a sense it was inevitable, that they recommended the states organize new state governments. The old Colonial charters, the documents that established their colonial governments, were obsolete now. And so they, they, they recommended the states adopt new constitution. They couldn't make them do it, but it seemed like a reasonable thing to do. And uh, the Virginians did it without much hesitation. So that provided the, 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 the structure of state government during Jefferson's uh, uh, governorship and was a real uh, sore spot with Jefferson and Madison. There were a number of things that they didn't like about the 1776 Constitution. Um, and one was sort of technical, but it was important to them. They didn't think the 1776 Constitution was a real Constitution. It had been adopted by this convention that had been elected simply to provide a kind of interim or provisional government between the time that royal authority collapsed and, and a new government could be established. Um, and, uh, and one thing I, I, that I hope comes through in, in the book is throughout the 1770s and 1780s, Americans are trying to figure out how to do constitutions. And the federal constitution of 1787, in a large measure, is, is a result of a lot of trial and error in the 1770s and, and 1780s. And, 
uh, Jefferson and Madison thought that this constitution that was just adopted by this kind of ad hoc uh, assembly, it's not a real constitution. A real constitution should be written by delegates who were elected specifically to write a constitution, and then it should be ratified or approved by the voters. And uh, that had not happened with the 1776 constitution. So when, when there was a movement to have a constitutional convention, who voted it the authority? How did they have the authority to write a constitution? Well, it, it, again, at this period, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, you almost have sort of a consensus getting anything done. The uh, Congress endorses the idea. They did. They, Congress endorses the idea uh, of having a convention. Now, we'll may talk in a minute about what kind of convention, but Congress, Congress issues a call for a convention, uh, and all the states except Rhode Island agree to send delegates to this, to, to this Philadelphia convention. Um, the, I think the original idea was this convention would just amend the Articles. But Madison says, well, what happened when we got now there are people that suspect Madison had other ideas from the very beginning, and certainly I think Hamilton did. But Madison says, what happens, we get to Philadelphia and we realize we can't, the articles are beyond repair. We're going to have to start from scratch. Why was the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia? Uh, Philadelphia was the largest city in 1787 uh, and uh, probably the most centrally located of, uh, of the major cities, uh, and I suspect sort of tradition had a lot to do with it. The Continental Congress had met in a lot of places, but more often, uh, most often, in Philadelphia. Uh, so it was a natural location. How were the delegates chosen? Uh, the delegates were chosen in most, and I'm not an authority on all this, I've looked at Virginia, North Carolina, and a few others. Um, Generally, the legislature would would select them. Uh, a number of people turned down the appointment, uh, and uh, and then in, in in some cases the governor would appoint uh, a replacement. Uh, what was George Washington's role, and uh, did they have to persuade him yes, to participate yes. in this? Uh, Washington's role was mainly symbolic. Um, Washington really didn't. I don't think he really wanted to participate in the Constitution Convention uh, for, for, for a lot of reasons. He wasn't a constitutional scholar. Uh, he, he wasn't a lawyer. Um, and uh, he, had, um, he had been invited to come to Philadelphia for a meeting of the Society of the Cincinnati, which were uh, Revolutionary War or Continental Army officers. And the Society was controversial. There, 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 were, there, were, there were some folks who were afraid that it might be the, uh, the nucleus of an American aristocracy, that these men that had been officers in the Continental Army might have some ideas of creating a kind of hereditary aristocracy. And Washington didn't want to have any part of that. So he, he, he decided not to go to the Cincinnati meeting in, in, in Philadelphia. And he was afraid if he went to the Constitutional Convention, it would offend some of his former officers. Um, and probably in the back of his mind, he, he didn't want to look like he was trying to do something to enhance his own political power. But uh, <coughs> Madison, I think some other people, but particularly Madison, thought that they really needed Washington. They needed his, uh, his, his approval. If he just showed up and, 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 and sent a message that he supported this, 
that would mean an awful lot. And so Madison and some others were eventually able to, to persuade Washington to come. Um, he was the, the presiding officer over the convention, although he didn't preside over all the, all the sessions, did not make much of a substantive contribution to the convention. I think a lot of historians would say he probably didn't contribute anything. But he becomes very important in the ratification debate, simply the fact that he supported the Constitution. And some of the anti-federalists, now the anti-federalists were the folks that opposed ratification, uh, some of the anti-federalists said that, you know, we, we never could overcome Washington's support for the Constitution. Um, which sort of leads me to, 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 to another point, I'm sure we'll probably get to, to this in a minute. Uh, Jefferson initially had some serious reservations about the Constitution. And one of those reservations was the fact that there were no term limits for president. He didn't think the president should be eligible for re-election. Uh, Jefferson's concern was that if you had a powerful chief executive and he could be re-elected, the, the re-election campaign could open up the door to all kinds of bad things, including foreign interference. That's sort of a, a timely issue. He, he was concerned about, about foreign interference. Um, but there wasn't much support for in, imposing ter term limits on the president. And, um, and, and, and Jefferson said he thought one reason for that was everybody assumed that, Je that Washington would be president. And uh, if Washington wanted to be president for life, that would, that would be fine. Um, and Jefferson eventually dropped his demand for term limits. You write in here, uh, Rhode Island had boycotted the Philadelphia Convention, which you mentioned. Two of the three New York delegates had walked out in protest. Fifty-five delegates had attended at one time or another, but only 42 stayed until the end. And of those, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts and two Virginians, George Mason and Edmund Randolph, refused to sign the Constitution. So uh, it was by no means a unanimous support for doing this. No, it was, it was by no means a unanimous um, was there any danger of it falling apart? At some I think point? there was a good bit of danger of it, of it, of it falling apart. Um, the, um, uh, as I said, Rhode Island eventually had a referendum, uh, and it was voted down by like five to one or ten to one. I can't remember the figure, but it was it was crushing defeat in Rhode Island. Were they just being ornery? Well, the, 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 well, <laughs> a lot of people would say that about Rhode Island, but um, Rhode Island was a major. A port, and a lot of imports and exports went through Rhode Island. And Rhode Island didn't want Congress regulating trade because Rhode Island was making money off, off, uh, uh, kind of going its own way, uh, uh, you know, taxing imports and then shipping them to New York or or, or, or whatever. So Rhode Island had a financial incentive to uh, to not go along. Uh, New Hampshire, uh, there was a convention in New Hampshire, and they decided to postpone a decision. On the convention, uh, the convention in North Carolina, by about an 85 to about 185 margin, voted not to ratify. Uh, there was substantial opposition in Massachusetts and in Virginia, very close in Virginia. Uh, so yeah, there was a good chance that the, the Constitution would not be ratified. So they all arrived in Philadelphia and. How did they how did they proceed? I mean, what was the structure of it of the debate? And, and did they have an, an outline for the Constitution to start out with? Well, the um, Madison and most of the Virginia delegates uh, got to Philadelphia a few days before the convention was scheduled to start. The Pennsylvania delegates were also 
here, obviously. They were, they, they were, they were the first on, on the scene. Uh, the Virginia delegation tended to be fairly nationalistic. I mean, they, they were committed to strengthening the federal government, and so was the Pennsylvania delegation. So those were, and James Wilson, who was, uh, of course, from Pennsylvania, was a strong leader of the nationalist faction. Robert Morris and Governor Morris, other Pennsylvanians, were delegates, and they were strong nationalists. Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin, that's right, Benjamin Franklin. How could I forget Benjamin Franklin? Franklin. And uh, so the, the Virginia delegates had some time to, to work together and also to talk to the, the Pennsylvania delegation. And they come up with the Virginia plan, which was a short, about two-page outline for a constitution. And that becomes the starting point for the, for the debates. So um, did, I, I wanted to ask you about Benjamin Franklin. Did he have any kind of role? Uh, was he influential at it all? It was, it was limited. Uh, Franklin's not in good health. Uh, he doesn't make very many speeches. Uh, I think, uh, it, it, and it, I don't know if it was true of all of them, but uh, sometimes he'd have somebody read a speech for him because he just couldn't, it was hard for him to stand and speak. Um, I, I would say Franklin's most important uh, role may have been in urging acceptance of the Great Compromise, or the Connect Compromise. Uh, the most difficult issue the delegates had to deal with was a question of how would states be represented in Congress. On the Articles, each state had one vote, and uh, the large states uh, didn't like that. Uh, Madison was very much opposed to it. Uh, uh, Madison thought if you're going to shift more power to, to, to Congress, if you're going to make decisions of Congress binding on the states, then they need to be fairly represented and binding on individuals. People need to be fairly represented. So uh, Madison thought representation should be based on population, proportional representation. The small states were bitterly opposed to that. It threatened to break up the convention uh, until they finally hit upon the Great Compromise, which is what we have now, state equality in the Senate, but the House of Representatives based on population. Um, and Franklin supported that. Franklin was one of the few large state delegates that supported the Great Compromise. So I would say that was probably his most important contribution and also you know, just lending his prestige to, the, to, to the, the, way, the way George Washington did. Was the thinking all along to have a, a House and a Senate or was the creation of the Senate part of the Great Compromise? Uh, the, no, the Virginia plan included a provision for a House of Representatives based on population. It also included a provision for an upper house which in the course of the debates they started calling the Senate. So the Virginia plan anticipated two-house legislature. Uh, Madison was never very clear about how the Senate would be uh, selected. Uh, he, he said that it would, be, it would be selected by the House of Representatives from, from candidates nominated by the states. Um, I think he was a little fuzzy on this, maybe, because he, he, he didn't necessarily envision each state would be represented in the Senate, that each state could make a nomination, and then the, the House representatives would select who they wanted, and so Rhode Island might, might get left out. Um, now, that may sound pretty strange to us, and it sounds strange to some Madison's contemporaries, 
but they tended to think of a Senate not as a representative body, but as a deliberative body, as a kind of a check on the House of Representatives and not, 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 as, a, not as a representative um, body. Uh, the small states pushed back with what came to be known as the New Jersey plan, which that proposed just a one-house legislature. Uh, how many big states were there and how many small states were there? Uh, the, uh, the, the big states really were uh, Massachusetts, uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia. There were just three really big states. Uh, and then you had New York and North Carolina, um, uh, which were almost big and were going to become big. Uh, so there were really more small states than there were large states which is one reason the small states were able to extract this, this compromise. And the Great Compromise passed five to four? Very close. It was, it, it, was, it was close, although uh, it, it wasn't as close as it might appear because when they took the final vote, the New Hampshire delegates hadn't shown up. And if the New Hampshire delegates had been there, they would have voted for the compromise. So uh, once it passed, even though I, it was, I guess it was just one vote, I, I think you know, the, deal, the die was cast. How did the debate unfold? I mean, if you were sitting in there watching them debate, how, how did, a, did it look like the, the U.S. House or U.S. Senate debates look like? No, they, they decided early on that um, they would allow members to request reconsideration of issues. Uh, and uh, they, um, they operated as what was often called, what was called a committee of a whole, uh, it, which, where you don't have real formal procedural rules. So the debates were often, if you read the record of the debates, they're often sort of circular, a little bit confusing, because you'll think they'll decide one issue one day, and then a week later it's back up and, you know, with a different result. What kind of records are there of the debates? The most thorough records are the records kept by Madison. Madison had done a lot of research in the origins of other republics and was frustrated that, that the records tended to be pretty scanty. So he wanted to make a pretty thorough record of these debates. He did that on his own. He do he does this on his own with no 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 authority or compensation or whatnot. Uh, he sets up near the presiding officer so he can hear. He takes the notes in shorthand uh, during the day and then goes back to his room at night and copies them out in longhand. They're very arduous, and you can tell as the debates go on. The, the, his notes become a little sketchier. Uh, two or three of the other delegates kept some notes. They weren't nearly as thorough as, as Madison's. And then there was an official journal uh, kept by a secretary that the, the convention had retained. But uh, those are pretty much just a record of motions and votes. Uh, uh, don't tell you much about the debates. Do Madison's original notes still exist? They still exist. They, the, the, uh, the originals are in uh, the Library of Congress, uh, and then they've been uh, reprinted, uh, published in various sources. What was the debate like about the creation of a chief executive? That, that's an interesting one to follow, because whereas with the debate of representation, there's a, a clear block, you know, large states versus small states, and that, and, and that makes sense. Uh, when it comes to the problem of creating a chief executive, uh, it's a protracted debate too, but the problem there is they just don't know what they want to do. They, they, there's been no, they have no precedent for a chief executive 
in a larger public. Was there any country in the world at the time who had something like uh, what they were looking at? Well, well, Poland sort of had an elected king, but that hadn't worked very well. Uh, the, um, the the Netherlands had what they call the Stadtholder, I think that's the way you pronounce it. Uh, but that government had dissolved into civil war. Uh, I'm not sure there was a country in the world that had anything quite like a president. Not a lot of blueprints to follow. There were not a lot of blueprints, so they weren't really sure what the president should do. They certainly weren't sure how the president should be elected. Uh, and uh, they just sort of stumble around and really come up with the system we've got now. Of course, that's been modified by constitutional amendments. Kind of at the last minute, uh, they, they come up with, with a plan. Who was against it? Where, who, who was for it? Who was against it? Did who? people, some people want a strong chief executive, a strong president, other people wanted just a Well, the, the, more, the more nationalist delegates uh, tended to want a stronger executive, um, but the Constitution really doesn't say much about what the president's supposed to do. Uh, most, of the, most of the relevant language in the Constitution just pertains to how the president be selected. That was, uh, that was the really tough issue, and I think they assumed that uh, most policy initiatives would come from Congress. They didn't really see the president as uh, the, 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 the engine that drove the development of policy. They saw the, the House and Senate as being the preeminent branch of government? And particularly the House, particularly, particularly the House. Um, uh, when the Constitution goes into effect, uh, now the senators are, select, were originally selected by the state legislature, and anti-federalists dominated the Virginia state legislature and did not pick Madison for the Senate. He was a candidate, but he lost. He runs for Congress, he's elected the House of Representatives. Uh, and Madison says he was, he'd really, really prefer to be in the House because I think they thought, again, because the House was the representative branch, the Senate was the deliberative body, that most policy would be initiated in the House. And during the ratification debate, the role of the Senate becomes very controversial, and and there's a great fear that the Senate will be will be too too powerful. Uh, Where did they come up with the idea for the Electoral College? Well, the idea of uh, of electors had been out there for some time. Uh, uh, there were the the, the the Holy Roman Empire in Germany and in Poland had 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 electors. Uh, so the idea of voters or citizens who are selecting people to select, you know, uh, an, an executive was um, uh, not new. But I think that the, the genesis of it was that everything else they looked at didn't <laughs> seem to make much sense. Um, Madison originally thought, well, we'll let the House representatives select the president. And then he said, no, we don't want the president to be dependent on the House. Uh, so who, do you, who else could do it? Well, you don't want state governors or state legislatures selecting the president because one of the things we want this Constitution to do is to kind of put a check on the state governments, and so we don't want to give them too much input into the way that the national government functions. We could have a popular election, and Madison wasn't philosophically opposed to that. We'd have a popular election, but there are problems with that. Uh, and one of the problems was 
and remember, there's no no TV, no internet. You know, um, uh, be, be virtually impossible in 1789 to conduct a national campaign. It also would be considered sort of in bad taste or poor form, but just the, the technical challenges were, were overwhelming. Um, and just to give you an example, I just was rereading the book yesterday and know something I forgot and I had said. When, uh, <clears throat> when, when Jefferson was first elected to the Continental Congress, it took him nine days to get from Williamsburg to Philadelphia. I mean, imagine trying to conduct a national campaign when, uh, when you might be traveling by horse and buggy that went about three miles an hour. Um, and so they were afraid that what you'd have is states voting for favorite signed candidates. If you had a popular election, folks in Pennsylvania vote for somebody in Pennsylvania. Folks in Virginia vote for somebody in Virginia. And you could never get a majority. Um, uh, Madison also was concerned that um, there are more white voters in the North than in the South. Uh, but he said he could, he could live with that problem. But after they sort of canvassed all the options, they thought uh, probably electing, letting folks elect local politicians that they knew and then letting them make a, a selection was, was probably the best option. <coughs> you mentioned that Jefferson was in Paris at yes. the time. So was he able to be influential in, the, in what eventually became the Constitution, or was there too much? He was. I think that was one of the sort of the interesting things I found in the, in the book, that uh, he kept up a very lively correspondence. Uh, and uh, so he did have uh, in, in, in influence. Uh, I think he influenced Madison. I think he influenced the debates in some of the state conventions. Uh, Matt, uh, Jefferson initially had very serious reservations about the Constitution. As I mentioned earlier, he thought there should be term limits for the president. He also thought there should be a Bill of Rights. And so his, um, his, uh, uh, his, his, his solution, his, his recommendation was that nine states approve the Constitution. That was what the convention had said would be required for it to take effect as to those nine states. And then four states withhold ratification until the Bill of Rights could be added. And uh, the letter in which he proposed that became public, and it was mentioned in the Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina debates and encouraged, encouraged anti-federalist. Um, so he, he made ratification a little bit more difficult than it would have been otherwise. Uh, and also, he has some influence on Madison, because uh, Madison doesn't think we need a Bill of Rights. He's, he, Madison's argument is the Constitution does not empower Congress to violate freedom of religion or freedom of the press, so we don't need a Bill of Rights. And he has some other objections to it. Uh, and uh, Jefferson says, no, we, we need a Bill of Rights. And Madison eventually comes around to that position. Are there letters that went back and forth between yeah. Jefferson and Madison <coughs> where they're arguing over Yeah, there, there, are, there, are, there are letters. Uh, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, yeah, there, there's, there's, there's correspondence. I realized I had to be careful when I, when I read them in kind of assessing the impact because it would take months for letters to get across the Atlantic. Uh, so just because maybe Jefferson wrote a letter in March of 1788, that might not mean he had any influence on something that happened uh, you know, two months later because the letter might, might not have circulated. Yeah, but there's extensive, uh, uh, fairly extensive correspondence between the two.
How did the Constitutional Convention envision the judiciary? Um, I, I was afraid you might ask. We could do a program on that. Uh, and, and they wanted they wanted an independent judiciary. Uh, in England, the uh, judges had often been crown appointees and basically agents of, of the king. They wanted federal judges to be independent. Um, they wanted them to enjoy lifetime appointments to ensure their independence. They saw a need for a Supreme Court. Um, other than that, they sort of left it up to Congress to determine the structure of the, of the lower federal courts. Um, what they intended for the federal courts to do, or at least what Madison and Jefferson intended, is um, it's, 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 a, it's a little confusing. Um, you know, we take the idea of judicial review for, for granted, the, the idea that courts can strike down laws that they think are unconstitutional. The, the Supreme Court has the ultimate say. Yeah, the Supreme Court yes has the no. ultimate say, and they can decide whether a law is, is constitutional or not. That idea of judicial review is just emerging uh, in, um, uh, in, in 1787. And, and, and I've, I've used the term sometimes, not in this book, but in some other writings, the, the, uh, the other constitutional revolution. Uh, and Gordon Wood has written on this, he has some interesting comments on this, that while the Philadelphia Convention is adopting a new constitution, the, the, the American courts are becoming more assertive, more professional, and begin to assert the, the role of the right of judicial review. And you can kind of see in the book Madison and Jefferson kind of struggling to figure out, do we really like this or, or not? And in places, you'll see them expressing reservations about it. In other places, uh, they seem to support it. You quote Jefferson as saying, to, you say to, to Jefferson, federal judges had become a core of sappers and miners steadily working to undermine the independent rights of the states and to consolidate all power in the hands of the government in which they hold such an important freehold of state. Yes. Not high opinion of the court. That's not, and that's later. In, <clears throat> that's later in life. That's probably from about the 1820 or so. Uh, in uh, the 1780s, Jefferson's got a higher opinion of the courts. Um, um, one, of the, uh, one of the arguments that he makes in favor of the Bill of Rights is that, uh, well, I should back up. One of the arguments Madison made against the Bill of Rights is that it would be hard to enforce. And Jefferson's response is, no, the courts will enforce it. If Congress passes a law that violates freedom of religion or whatever, the courts will strike it down. And uh, uh, he, uh, he says uh, at one point, uh, you, know, uh, you know, why not trust a court made up of distinguished jurists like Edmund Pendleton, who was a famous uh, uh, Virginia judge. Uh, later, and after John Marshall's become Chief Justice and began to expand the authority of the Supreme Court, um, Jefferson has reservations. Um, he thinks that federal courts are intruding on the jurisdiction of the state courts, and uh, they're letting Congress do things that that the Constitution was not intended to authorize Congress to do. Who wrote the preamble that we, the people of the United States, in order to form the, that we all had to memorize? In I school? believe that was Governor Morris. I, I believe I believe he was the he was the one that uh, the way the Constitution develops. They the, the delegates pass all these assorted resolutions 
uh, and then toward the end of the convention, somebody's got to put all those resolutions into the form that we know of as the Constitution. And my recollection is that, that Morris was the principal draftsman and I think the author of the preamble. The, the word slavery does not appear in the Constitution at Does all. not. Does not. And um, uh, Jefferson, Madison, most of the founding fathers who was thought of slavery as a necessary evil. Madison was a slaveholder? Madison was a slaveholder. Uh, Jefferson was a slaveholder. Jefferson owned many more slaves than, than Madison, but they were both slaveholders. Uh, they were both opposed to slavery in principle, um, hoped that it would eventually be abolished. And uh, Madison wanted to avoid mentioning slavery in the Constitution because uh, he, he, he wanted to avoid, uh, to, to avoid given the appearance of endorsing slavery. And they, you know, they, they, the founders used some, some, some verbal gymnastics uh, it, it, to his replacing the Constitution because they've got to deal with slavery, but they don't really want to talk about it. So when they finally finished it, and, and what's in it? I mean, if somebody picks it up and reads it, first of all, how long does it take to read the Constitution? It doesn't take very long. I, uh, I, I skimmed over it. Last night, I thought since I'd written this book about it, maybe I should go back and take a look at it. You can read it in a, in, in a few minutes. Uh, you'll skim over some things, but, uh, you know, there's Article 1, I believe, deals with Congress. And that's not an accident because, again, they thought Congress would be sort of first among equals in the three branches of government. Uh, Article 2, the executive, as I recall. Article 3, I believe, the judiciary. And then uh, there's some miscellaneous provisions in the other articles. Uh, but it's not a long document. Well, are there things people would be surprised at in reading? Uh, I, sus I suspect we'd be surprised at a number of things. I Just off the top of my head, there's a provision in there that makes it illegal for prohibited states from, from uh, granting titles of nobility. You probably hadn't thought about Pennsylvania making somebody a duke or a counter baron lately, <laughs> and they can't under the Constitution. Uh, so there's some things like that. Uh, there's a provision, I believe, that says that the, uh, the, the, the state equality in the, and I probably should look this up, but <laughs> that um, the, the, well, basically the Great Compromise should never be undone. Uh, yeah, I think people would find some things. I, I think they'd be surprised um, at... Um, it's, it's some of the things they read. I'll say that. Are, are there popular misconceptions about the Constitution? Well, I, I think I think there probably are, and one that that I thought was interesting uh, was, was who wrote it. Um, I saw a poll a few years ago, and just you know, the person in the street was asked of the founding fathers who was the most important uh, in, in terms of writing the Constitution, and Thomas Jefferson won. <laughs> And Jefferson wasn't even there. Uh, they might be surprised at some of the people who weren't there. John Adams wasn't there. Samuel Adams wasn't there. Uh, uh, Patrick Henry wasn't there. It was, it was still a very distinguished group of folks, but there were some of those famous founding fathers who weren't there. Alexander Hamilton was there, but he didn't do very much. He was one that kind of left, or was gone for several weeks, then came back. Was George Washington involved in, in uh, trying to get it uh, approved, ratified, or did he sit out? Sit Washington did not serve in the Virginia Convention uh, that was called to consider ratification. Um, 
people knew he supported ratification. I think he wrote a few letters. But uh, that's a good question because I really hadn't thought much about that he, because he keeps a pretty low profile. When people were considering whether or not to ratify the Constitution, did they sort of think, well, Washington will be yeah, there, so it'll be yes, okay? Yes, they did. He was a factor even he, though he, he didn't? Yes, he, he was a factor. Uh, Anti-Federalist, uh, a lot of them raised the issue that you know, the, the, the president may be too powerful. You know, I mentioned Jefferson was concerned about president because he could be reelected, re not become president for life. But uh, those arguments never had much traction because of, because everybody assumed Washington would be the next president. Are there glaring mistakes in the Constitution? Probably, uh, yes. Uh, there, there's some pretty glaring ones. One of the f one of the things that the founders missed or didn't anticipate was the rise of political parties. Uh, they 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 saw political parties as special interest groups that were threat to Republican values. Uh, Jefferson said famously that if he, he could only go to heaven with a political party, he wouldn't go. Of course, Jefferson was <laughs> was, was was prone to over, over, overstatement. Uh, they didn't anticipate that, and that caused problems almost immediately. Uh, one of the asking about sort of oddities in the in the Constitution. One of the oddest oddest things in the original Constitution was the provision that the runner-up in the presidential election would become vice president. Um, which was just a really bad idea once political parties started. And uh, by uh, 1796, uh, John Adams is elected on the, what is now the Federalist political party ticket. Jefferson was his opponent on the Democratic-Republican ticket. Federalists and Democratic-Republicans have become bitter enemies, but now Jefferson's his, his vice president. Um, what, and then is, that was bad. What was even worse was in 1800, the Democratic-Republicans win, uh, but uh, because each elector cast, the way the Electoral College worked originally, each elector cast two votes. The theory, and, and you, could, you could only vote for one person from your state. So the, the idea was to, uh, 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 sure, you can vote for your favorite son, but we want you to vote for somebody that could actually win a majority of the vote and majority majority of the states. And to make sure you don't throw away that second vote, because you know you could vote for George Warris for president and you could vote for Ben Arnold for you know your other vote for Ben Arnold because you know no he's not going to win. But we don't want you to do that. So to, to, to make sure you don't throw away your vote, the runner up will come become vice president. So that second vote could come up. Well what happens in eighteen hundred is none of the Democratic Republican electors throw away their vote. So Jefferson and Burr who was Aaron Burr, who was supposed to be Jefferson's running mate, end up in a tie in the Electoral College. That goes to Congress. It's the lame duck Congress that resolves the dispute. The Federalists have a majority in Congress, and so the, the Federalists spend several weeks thinking, we don't want Jefferson to be president. We might be able to make a deal with Burr, we might be able to manipulate this situation so we can just elect a Federalist. So Aaron Burr ran as vice president, but he started thinking, oh, maybe yeah, we could yeah, the, turn this yeah, into yeah. presidency. The, the, the assumption was Jefferson's the presidential candidate, Burr's the vice presidential candidate, but the electors aren't voting for president or vice president. They're just, counting two, they're just casting two votes. So what somebody needed to do, one of, those, one of those people needed to vote for somebody other than Burr, but they didn't do that. They all voted for Jefferson and Burr. So there's a tie in the Electoral College. It goes to Congress. 
uh, there's this lame duck Federalist majority in control of Congress, and they're trying to figure out how they can manipulate this situation to, to, to their benefit. And uh, I think they eventually decide that's just a little bit too clever, and they decide to, to, to elect Jefferson. So I would say, and of course, I mean, you know, slavery is a whole other problem, but um, one of the just obvious sort of procedural problems is they came up with a way for selecting a president that just didn't work once political parties developed. Once the Constitutional Convention wrapped up its business and they said, okay, here's the Constitution, once nine states approve, it becomes... Yes. Did, did the government, under the Articles of Confederation, anybody in the Congress say, no, wait, wait a minute, you're not allowed to do this? Uh, well, that uh, the, 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 the Constitutional Convention sends the Constitution to Congress uh, and there is a debate in Congress, what should we do with this? Uh, and there are some of the folks that are going to become anti-federalists do raise this issue that the convention exceeded their, their authority. Uh, and uh, the, the federalists, the, the supporters of the Constitution, are saying uh, no. Uh, and Madison's position is, look, this, this document is nothing until the state's ratified. Uh, and so just uh, uh, um, we, we haven't exceeded our authority yet unless the states decide this is what they, what they want and they should be able to do, to do that. Um, what Congress does, in which they reach a sort of a, con a compromise, is they will simply send the Constitution to the states and recommend the states convene conventions to consider ratification. Um, so, uh, so they're sort of giving the appearance of supporting it without coming out and saying so. And the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists decide they can live with that. You're working on another book? Uh, not working on another book right now. I'm working on an, uh, uh, an article because I'm contributing to another book on Madison and the development of American federalism, uh, kind of a spinoff from this project. We've been speaking with Jeff Broadwater. He is the author of this book, Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.